We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I'm Chanae Ogwumike. I'm Lisa Leslie, and we're very excited to tell you about our new podcast with Blue Wire, Front and Center. Lisa and I are breaking down what's going on in our lives, in the world, and keeping it 100. We're also learning from amazing guests as well, like Emmanuel Acho. People that show love to me, I forever got their back. Vivica A. Fox. If the foundation isn't right, then the rest of it's going to go wrong from there. And more. Subscribe to Front and Center today. Welcome to episode 225 of the Barcelona Podcast, home to the most influential voices in the FC Barcelona community, brought to you by the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm Dan Hilton, and I'm again joined by Frances Tomas, former Barcelona columnist featured on ESPN, The Guardian, All That, and Frances. We were only supposed to talk once this week, but the listeners called for it. It's basically an emergency podcast because Bartomeu has resigned, and Barcelona happened to play against Juventus yesterday. So Frances, I know you were chomping at the bit to discuss this stuff, so I'll ask you, what do you want to hit first today? Hola, Cules. Um, no, I'm really disappointed that Bartomeu has decided to go. Oh, no, Frances. I don't think people understand sarcasm here sometimes. I'm very disappointed Bartomeu <laughs> is gone, um, unfortunately. And uh, I think we talk about Juve first. And then when it gets to Bartomeu, I'll get my napkins and, you know, my tissues. And, you know, I'll, I'll, we just all cry together about the departure of one of the best people ever to grace the Valograna logo, ever. Feeding the trolls, Frances. Always feeding the trolls. That's what they say. But yes, we will hit Bartomeu resigning and what that means, because that basically is day one and then beyond for this club. Because yesterday, we're going to start in the past, and then I guess Bartomeu resigning really is all about the future. Because we are going to talk about Barca's 2 nothing win over Juventus, which was, I think a lot of people are saying, the most comprehensive victory for the Blagrana so far this season. Obviously, the, the neutrals or all those who are looking forward to this match were saying that it would be Messi versus Cristiano Ronaldo. But Ronaldo, uh, while he wasn't happy about it, he can cry about it. But he did test positive for coronavirus a little bit too late. And I would say the same thing. If coronavirus held Messi out, you got to hold him out. It doesn't matter. Take it seriously. So Ronaldo not featuring in this game. And Juventus certainly could have used him. I, I was worried about their tactics where usually with that 3-5-2, we knew they were going to use width. We knew that they would, the first option was to use the width, but the second option was to try to beat Barcelona through the middle. And Barca said, hey, we're going to shade over properly. We're going to have Roberto tuck into the third center back. And we're going to make sure that Juventus has to beat us on the wing where there could be extra help. And we're not going to let them beat us through the middle. And they wound up winning that battle. So as far as the things that we could talk about here, Frances, I'm actually, again, going to give you a blank slate open canvas here. Do you want to talk about the defensive shape of the team and the defensive duties and how the victory kind of came about? Or is there an individual player that you want to jump out? I mean, the names that I said, if for those who might have watched YouTube, the review from yesterday, the match review, Messi, Pedri, Dembele, Pjanic, Griezmann, really any of those names jump out to you? Well, in football, as all the listeners know, um, it's all about the collective. It's all about working together to achieve a common goal. And uh, I think the most important thing that Barca have been lacking over the years is, or the latest years at least, is cohesion, it's sacrifice, is the ability to all pull together in one direction to make things happen. So I think that the most important difference between the win yesterday against Juve in Italy to the Liverpool debacle, the Bayern Munich debacle, and all of those terrible nights in Europe that unfortunately we have to endure in recent years is that the players were actually running 
eager to show what they do in training on the pitch. And I think that is the key difference, something that Kuman is bringing. He always says, se juega como se entrena, which is you play as you train. And I think it was, it was really, really obvious that the players were fitter, they were much fresher than we've normally seen in recent times. I mean, in terms of individual performances, I think for me, the one that stood out because of his tricks and his skill was Pedri. Um, obviously, if you just if you don't watch the games and you just watch the highlight reels, um, which I'm assuming someone in YouTube has done, um, possibly, then you're probably going to be able to fill up two, three minutes of filigranas, which are little tricks of malabares that um, Pedri could do, or his little turnarounds, or his little lifting the ball, going away from the from the opponents, etc. Having said that, I think he was good. So don't don't get me wrong here. I think he was good, but I think that obviously because he's played away from, from his ideal position, which should be as an attacking midfielder behind the striker, then you know he's got still some growth. But then again, he's 17 years old. He just came from playing 80 minutes in a Clásico, and he played pretty much the whole game, if I'm not mistaken, um, in Italy. And uh, you know that's a lot of Pedri at 17 years old in two in the two most important matches that Barca have had this season. So I, I think my frustration on the Pedri argument about whether or not he's playing well, I, I think I see even on our listener group, there was a lot of quick reactions to Pedri's first half in that competition. And I think understanding what he was asked to do can help us actually shape not our opinion of the overall player. I think we keep making this this broad stroke of a brush because this is a new commodity to us. And we do this with every player where when they're a new player to our team and the, basically the first time we're really seeing them minute after minute and match after match, that we decide to have these big ideas of what that player is. And you look at his role against Juventus and his whole job in that first half was to do what Griezmann had been asked to do in the first three or four matches of the season when Griezmann was out on the right side. And the whole idea was that Barzal would build up to Alba and Fatih on the left and that Griezmann's job was to tuck in and help Roberto defensively so he could cut in and get a little more action in the middle of the field. And meanwhile, Griezmann would just, again, stay and be defensive, especially help out on that wing where there might have been overloads for the other team. And Juventus was trying to do the same thing. Time after time and again, they were trying to flip the switch and make it a basically a two-on-one on Roberto's side of the field. So that means that Dembele would have to continue to come back on the right side and help out with Roberto in those double teams. So what Juventus did then was switch that in the first half at least, because again, the game plan was to flip it to, we'll say, the attacking left flank for Juventus. And on the other side, it was Pedri and Alba. Alba does, as we know, consistently need help on his side of the field. So Pedri was basically pinned back to help with double teams on Alba. And if you just, as far as what the game plan and what he was asked to do in the first half, he wound up doing his job. Yeah, yes, did he get too many attacks forward? Was he able to help with build up? Not much. But then in the second half, and this is basically the connection to Messi here, that in that second half, as Messi continued. I mean, he was relentless in this match. We had a typical Messi or, or traditional Messi performance, not a typical of this season, but a traditional Messi performance that it opened up space for everybody else. And so in that second half, because Messi was now, once again, the gravitational pull of the Argentine creator was able to bring two or three defenders that didn't necessarily leave their man to come with Messi in the first half. He created such a gravitational pull as Juventus started to tire in that match. And as you had mentioned, Barcelona being a little more hardworking was helpful to wear down the opponent in ways that it, they, they usually don't. So again, with a tired Juventus, they're more likely to bring that help on Messi. And that opened up space for Pedri that allowed Busquets to drop deeper and continue to just sit in that Busquets spot and not be stretched out because he didn't have to worry about Juventus coming with the same kind of pace on a counterattack that we've seen so far. So again, Messi, his pull and his ability does make it easier for everyone else, including a Pedri. But I'm I'm a little frustrated with the idea that we've decided what player Pedri is and we don't necessarily think about what is asked of him. And I think not not that you've been doing this at all, but I, I'm also kind of annoyed at the argument that we keep having about Pedri that every time you say his name, you have to bring up Puj, but it's it's not the same thing at all. It's They're in different situations. It's not Pedri or Puj. I keep saying that, that it, yes, Coutinho's out and maybe Puj could have been in that spot. Or if Busquets isn't working instead of Pjanic or De Jong, maybe De Jong could be rotated once in a blue moon and Puj could be in that spot. But I don't understand why it has to be one young player versus another young player when they're also 
four years apart in age. And Pedri is giving a specific job at the moment. And he might be Coleman's player for that moment. And that's okay. But we have to continue to hope that Puj can break his way in. And if that takes minutes away from Pedri, fine. If it takes minutes away from Coutinho or De Young or Busquets or Pjanic, whoever Puj winds up taking minutes from, that's fine too. And I just want to almost separate those names because that is definitely a narrative. And I was wondering what the narratives for this season were going to be. And the Pedri Puj one is one that I am already completely exhausted with. And I'm done with that argument completely. Well, that's why I'm not on Twitter, because really there is no point of entertaining or wasting life in, in reading things like that. Um, I totally agree with what you said. Um, I didn't even know, to be honest, until this point that there was a debate on Twitter about this. But it, to me, makes absolutely no sense. They are two different players. They are players that are in a squad, a professional squad, in a squad that, you know, we've got the target of winning the treble every season. And the manager and any manager that we've had, obviously, they they've been to different kinds of ability themselves, but they obviously do everything they do in order to win games. And if Kuman is playing Pedri ahead of Puch, but not just ahead of Puch, also ahead of Carla Salagnan, ahead of any other player that can play in that position, Trincao, even Dembele himself, etc., or even Ansu Fati yesterday, then he must know what he's doing because otherwise he's just, you know, shooting his own, his own feet. Um, sacrifice, understanding of what the job is, able to meet the demands of, of the manager, Fresh, resilient. I think that Pedri showed loads and loads and loads of skill yesterday. Uh, plenty of potential as well, um, especially after, you know, not having the greatest game in El Clasico. But then again, don't forget, we're talking about a 17-year-old. So that's much better than what I could do at 17 years old. Um, just before recording, there was a tweet from, well, not a tweet, I'm not on Twitter. But there was a Facebook post from Andres Iniesta. And he was reminiscent of his first game in the Champions League. Um, he was 18 and a half years old. So basically, Pedri, e.g. Iniesta, back in time. So it took Iniesta a whole other year than it has taken Pedri or Ansu Fati, to be honest, to even debut in the Champions League. And Pedri's already scored and has Ansu Fati. So, you know, we are... And I don't want to hype the, the kids too much because it never really helps. But we are witnessing the growth and, and the birth even uh, at a professional level, at least, of two great players that could be a Barca for many years to come unless something does derail um, and, you know, they go a way that hopefully we'll never have to have to rule. Um, Denis Suarez, Malcolm, uh, you just mentioned Ricky Puch. Um, the Barca fan base are very keen, especially in latest years, to always side with an outsider. Artur can be added to that same pot as well. Uh, there's always someone in the squad that hardly plays, that have a large session of people who, you know, they just keep tweeting their lives away every time Barca plays during the week, etc. And they always have to, you know, pick a bone and just defend someone who then, when they leave Barca, they don't really play in the teams. I mean, Malcolm went to a Russian team. He's playing, but he's not doing anything spectacular. No other club in Europe has tried to sign him, as far as I know. Denis Suarez, he's playing at Celta, which is a mid-table team in Spain, which I think is his level. Um, sorry for the great Denis Suarez fans we may have in the listener um, you know, listener group. Um, Ricky Puch, obviously, he's, he's still with us. And then Artur, um, he was, you know, the rebirth of Xavi. You know, it was the second coming. He was like Joseph had come home, etc., etc., etc. But obviously, he played, what, 10 minutes against us? And he's been criticized by his manager, who, you know, I think he knows a thing or two about football. There's some Andrea Pirlo. I don't know if um, you know he's got any got any clue about what he's talking about. And Andrea I think he's Pirlo, I think he's just a wine drinker, right? Isn't he the yeah. the, the wine connoisseur, or is he the is he yeah. the football guy? Yeah, or a hairdresser, remember. one of the two. Right, definitely, right. definitely not one of the greatest players in football history. <laughs> so this guy doesn't play Artur from the beginning, and uh, he gives him ten minutes in arguably the most important game of the season. So really, um, I think that we need to start trusting our managers. Um, Definitely Ronald Koeman, a Barca legend that is a Champions League winner. Um, he's got nearly 20 years of experience coaching. He's coached alongside, I'm not saying he's great, but Van Gaal. He's coached the national team um, in, in Holland. He played under Johan Cruyff for 10, 15 years. Um, he's been surrounded by all the Dutch talent uh, throughout the whole of his career. Let's just trust him. Let's just hope that he knows what he's doing. And we just have to keep moving. I mean... Honestly, we have been not that great in Europe in the last four years. We played a game against Juventus in Italy. We have been vastly superior throughout pretty much the whole match. I think that if Griezmann has his shooting boots on, then we probably would have won that game 4-0 at least. 
obviously, granted, if the VAR and Morata knew what an offside was, then probably they would have scored another two or three as well. But, you know, that's a different story. But ultimately, it's a great win under the European spotlight. And, you know, the, we shouldn't be here or the fans shouldn't really be nitpicking at what it is. Let's enjoy it for what it is. There's always going to be talking points. But, you know, Messi had a great game. The team played collectively strongly. They were much more resilient, much more physically ready than they have been. And I think we should just be celebrating. We got the three points for once. Yeah, I agree with all those things. I mean, there are other things to talk about, whether it's Griezmann, Dembele, Pjanic, as I said, that'll be coming up after the break. Even though sports had a break, your business didn't. You have to keep moving, and that makes hiring more important than ever. Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier. Like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through December 31st. Football is back in full swing. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Bet BetOnline is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season, from game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props. BetOnline gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to BetOnline today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE at betonline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. All right, now I know everyone's waiting for Bartomeu. Now, you know how I am. I, I would like to move on. I just want to mention real quick, as much as I would like to talk about Griezmann, I thought he was really good. Dembele, nice to see that he got a start. Uh, you and I both, I think we had said that it was Dembele. I unfortunately kind of flipped my mind at the last minute to drink cow, but I'm glad that Dembele was the choice. And then, as I said, Pionic. I just want to add the quick little thing about Pionic here that we're not going to be talking about him much because much like the rest of the midfielders, that the midfield at Barcelona this season, the double pivot has so much of a brunt of the defensive duties and the job that they have to do and cover so much ground this season where you're going to feel like this defensive duo, whether it's De Jong and whoever might be next to him, Pionic or Busquets, that they are they're stretched out and it's going to be difficult for them to have fantastic performances just because of how much is being asked of them. But I think it's a little bit of an indictment of Busquets here that yes, he came on late and it was helpful that that game was going at a slow pace, but that was the kind of pace that Busquets needs to have in a contest for him to be able to really thrive the way that he's used to this season, where basically any other team that is going to be able to attack Barca through the middle. And this is the big thing that Pjanic allowed Coleman to do. He and De Jong, it was really interesting to see that they basically stayed on the same plane with, within about 15 yards of one another, where we keep seeing this season where Busquets is actually stepping further forward when Barcelona is trying to press the ball back. And that might just be because he cannot, it, it, maybe it's easier that Busquets is, his best quality is that anticipation he has. So by having him a little bit farther forward than De Jong when Barca is pressing, it allows him to anticipate and do what he does well to try to to get the ball and get in between the ball in that passing lane. But once Busquets is bypassing, he just doesn't have the ability to get back and cut out counterattacks the ways that he, I mean, not to say they used to, but certainly cannot anymore. And for Pjanic, it was interesting to see that instead of having Pjanic a little bit fo- more forward than De Jong, he did at times on the press, but by and large, Pjanic stayed basically on the same plane within 10 to 15 yards of De Jong, and they just shut down. They created this little mini wall and shut down everything going through the middle. You wonder why Dybala, and yes, it was at Langley, it was Araujo actually that was contending with Morata for much of the first half, and Morata lost that battle with Araujo, and then in the second half, that kind of switched to Langley. But for Langley, in that first half, he was tasked with coming forward and cutting out Dybala touching the ball. But Dybala, the ball never even really reached Dybala much because Pjanic and De Jong were suffocating in the middle of the field. So that was really what the game plan was. And then having Griezmann drop in as well defensively to help in the middle while Messi stayed forward and then Messi kind of rotating. It makes you wonder what's going to happen when Coutinho comes back because as this 
match again indicated Griezmann, Coutinho, Messi doesn't really all fit together. That's going to be continue to be a problem. And as far as Griezmann and Coutinho's and big signings, I guess I'll let you respond. I mean, I, you've kind of already put a final note on this match, but if you want, we can transition Griezmann and Coutinho into talking about big signings. And who made big signings, Frances? I think there was a former president of Barcelona that we can credit for those big signings. Well, yeah, he made um, several signings that were super expensive. Um, some of them worked out fairly well. Several others did not. Um, the last thing I want to say in the match before we go into that um, is just that Serginho Des was arguably the best player in a classical and did not feature at all um, in, in Italy. I think that is because Dembele started. So I just want to make a point about the fullbacks here. Jordi Alba, he was zooming forward constantly. I think he had a decent game by his standards. I think he had a great game based on his recent standards. Um, you were talking about the midfield double pivot. Um, I'm not going to repeat what you said, just to add that I think they're going to be the sacrificados. They're going to sacrifice their own individual shine, um, if that makes sense, so that the rest of the team can work. Without that double pivot, um, obviously they need to pass the ball better. They were a little bit sloppy in possession, but I think that will come with time. Whether it's Pjanic with the young or Busquets coming on, even Carlos Alagna or Ricky eventually coming on as well. I think that whoever plays there needs to be like the old Makelele of Real Madrid of the Galacticos, you know, just doing the dirty work so that everyone else can shine. A little bit like um, Rakitic used to do in 2015, 2016. So I think that's going to be the role. And by them doing that and not having individual protagonism, so the top four can do what they can do simply because they know they're more protected going, you know, from the back. Then Jordi Alba zooming forward, I think that the whole point of playing Pedri from the beginning is that Pedri will be able to associate better and even defend and drop back whenever Jordi Alba zooms past him, which um, fortunately was, was very often. But if you've got that on the left back, then on the right back, you cannot really have Serginho Dest because you've got Dembele up front. And Dembele is another player that just zooms forward, obviously from a winger position, not a fullback position. But if you've got Alba, Dest and Dembele, that would unbalance the whole of the game, which I really do think is why Kuman did what he did. Yep, I think that's where we can leave it. That's a good point. I think things were, again, positive on the field. And I'd say they were positive in the boardroom this week as well. It wound up being, we'll say, a rather scary week coming off El Clasico. It was a down week. And this is, again, just the highs and lows of being a team like FC Barcelona, being a club like Barcelona, that you can have incredible highs, incredible lows all in seven, eight days. And that's what we've continued to see. And I'm hoping that the drama is almost over now because Bartomeu, but you get the feeling that the drama has just begun as well. Because as again, the thing that the reason we're having this emergency podcast, if you will, is that Bartomeu has resigned. And Frances, I know you had that long answer just a minute ago, but I kind of answered it. I had a YouTube video about this, about his legacy. So I will let you go first here, where I'm not only what his legacy is, because we can list the things and I'm going to actually try to, I mean, I can handle that, but I'll have you avoid listing it. I guess my question for you is, it seems that he's being painted in this light of being somewhere between incompetent and evil when his legacy is written. Because I think he is, obviously, he's going to go down in history as one of the worst presidents that the club has ever had. And that's not hyperbole. When you think about Marti Carreta, the Barca president that fumbled the Di Stefano signing back in the 50s. You think about Enrique Pinheiro back in the early 40s. And Juan Gaspar. And I don't need to tell you anything about him. So, uh, or I don't want to remind you about the Gaspar era and all the winning that the club did not do in that time period. So when you talk about the worst presidents in history, you do look historically that he winds up being really, really bad for the social media scandals, the one that continues to jump out just because disparaging the names of Cruyff and Guardiola and potentially Messi. And if those things are true, having that kind of police investigation going on, and that's not speaking of the fact that Bartomeu's, his whole presidency began because Rosell was forced to resign and the club was forced to pay close to 5 million euros because of the issues involved in the dark money, as I've, I've always kind of alluded to, involved with the Neymar signing. And then you have where the Goldman Sachs potentially sends the club in the future. As I said, the relationship with players. Again, getting Messi, the greatest player who've ever laced up a pair of boots, to hate you with that vitriol that Messi hates him with uh, is, is something difficult to do. And then all of the bad signings that you, you've alluded to some of them, but whether they were for 100 million euros or whether, as you always like to use our punching bag, Douglas, whether they were 
3 million euros or they were 120 million euros. It just continued to be a few good signings, yes, maybe in the last two years, and three good signings back in 2014 in Rakitic, Suarez, and Der Stegen. But other than that, it has been a wasteland in the transfer market because you have a businessman who not only did he not know the business of football, but he didn't know about the football part of football. <laughs> so it seems like there was no sporting project whatsoever. And that winds up being the indictment that the, the Kool-Aids are really on top of Bartomeu about. And the indictment of that footballing project led to enough European losses that that treble, that treble back in 2015 is very much in the rearview mirror, very much in hindsight, and he'd completely lost it. So I, I think that's the bad. I listed it all out there for you, Frances. So when you hear all of that, does it come off as incompetent or evil? Or is there a chance that I, I don't want to put you in a position to defend Bartomeu either, but are we even being too harsh on him comparing him to the worst presidents of Barca history? No, no. <laughs> being too harsh. I know, I gave you an easy just, one. Softball question. Yeah, no, no. We're not. We're not going. Um, we're not going to be too harsh on him um, simply because we're just listing what reality is. Um, I think he's been harsh on himself. Um, he inherited one of the best bars I've seen in history um, from his friend Sandro Rossell, who you know, not many great things happened with Rossell on an economical perspective. And I'm just going to leave it there. Um, to be honest, at the end of the Laporta era, that didn't happen like that either. Uh, but at least both Laporta and Sandro Rossell both knew football. The, they were football men. They were culés from the beginning, you know, from, from birth, from the whole of their, you know, their upbringing. They understood the business of football, not just the economical side. And um, they they surrounded themselves by great people. Obviously, with Laporta, with Guardiola, Chiqui Begiristain, etc. Um, Sandro Rossell was part of that Laporta team. Then, obviously, they got annoyed with each other. And, obviously, they must know better than anybody else why that happened. Bartomeu was just El Delfin, so the, the Dolphin, under, under Sandro Rossell's era. And then when Rossell left, because he ran away, um, again, only he knows why, then he was, this Bartomeu got thrown into the presidency. So he was our president for far too many months without actually having been elected. Then he called an election, but because the team was not disastrous at the time. I mean, you've got Xavi, you've got Iniesta, you've got Puyol, you've got younger Piquet, etc. So the Sostis decided that Bartomeu should should stay, and then they gave him another four or five more years. And, um, you know, because of the inheritance that he got from Laporta and Roussel, then Andrani Zubizarreta was the sporting director at the time. Again, not, he's no Monchi, you know, from Sevilla, who is the genius of sporting director. But, um, and he made several terrible signings. And, you know, that's when Barca started to, you know, not being able to sign people properly uh, or, or, or signing average players by superstar money. But at least, you know, under Zubizarreta, Ivan Rakitic, Luis Suarez, uh, Marc-Andre Ter Stegen got signed. So you can say that, you know, it wasn't all bad, but then once Abidal arrived, then everything went downhill. I just think that Bartomeu is just sportingly incompetent. He didn't understand at the time what the business of football was, and I don't think he still does. Uh, but, you know, when you, you need to know what your limitations are as a leader. And um, if you know that, you know, you, you never really played football. I mean, this is a guy that supported Espanyol growing up. He even played for Espanyol as a basketball player. So that tells you two very telling things. Basketball, not football. Espanyol, not Barca. But, you know, put that to one aside. Then he surrounds himself by largely very incompetent people. Um, Luis Enrique was a sign in that, you know, he was a Barca captain. He's a Spanish international. He's someone with charisma, someone with, you know, cojones. And um, he led Barca to one of the best wins in 2015 in Champions League history. Uh, but then again, he had Luis Suarez inherited, he had Neymar inherited, and he had uh, pretty much all the other greats, uh, Messi, Xavi, Iniesta, pretty much at their peak, surrounded by Marc-André Ter Stegen, signed the year before that, and Rakitic signed with Vizarreta's blessing the year before that as well. So they managed to get a, a very strong team together. But then from that point onwards, they just spent so much money in average players that it's just nonsensical. Um, you've already alluded to this, but you know, every single season on every couple of seasons, we tend to throw away 10 million, 5 million, 6 million to some Brazilian nobody um, like Douglas or recently Mateus Fernandez, who is one of the Barca squad players for this season, signed for 10 million euros 
And uh, I, I don't want to be too harsh, but I would be surprised if his grandma knew who he is. So there you go. That, that's what Bartomeu has continued to do. Um, lots of players signed, given a chance ahead of La Masia youngsters uh, and signed for you know, stupid amounts of money. And then, which you think is the most decisive point, signing players like Dembele, Griezmann and Coutinho at incredible pl- prices, uh, pretty much throwing away all the money that we got back from Neymar when he ran away to PSG, which, by the way, why is Neymar running away to PSG? Well, because he's not entirely happy by the way that everything has been handled. Um, had a footballing president with more of a clue about football being in charge, then he could have found a way to keep Neymar, maybe. I'm not blaming Bartomeu entirely for this, but who knows what would have happened. Then, and, and it's what um, Victor Fon has been saying lately that you know we've been saying for many years. You've got people like Xavi, Guardiola, um, you've got Puyol, you've got Barca greats over the years that have got nothing, Victor Valdez, for example, that have got nothing to do with the club. Uh, they don't really want anything to do with the club and you need to wonder why. And I think the reason why is because they don't think that their values, their expertise would be either appreciated or nurtured under Bartomeu. So because of all of those reasons, and, you know, I'm forgetting, well, I'm no, not forgetting, it's because you've already mentioned it, but all the economical disaster, um, all of the um, antagonism, which pretty much the vast majority of the fan base, because let's not forget this, during the coronavirus pandemic, in which there were restrictions incredibly strongly applied all around Catalonia, all around Spain, 20,000 socios who, you know, traditionally, they don't really like moving too much, but 20,000 of them went out of the way to have a Museo de Sansura um, against Bartomeu. That's everything you needed to know. And I think that, you know, these, what happened in the last week, um, Bartomeu basically trying to blame the Catalan government for putting the Catalans' um, health and safety in danger when they were saying, no, no, just go ahead, it's fine. We, if you've organized it properly and you've got all the COVID measures in, in place, then the vote can go ahead. And then Bartomeu again delaying it for another week and saying, but are you sure this is this is going to be the way? I don't think it's going to be safe. And all the authorities saying, no, no, it is fine. You can just do it. And then him saying, oh, actually, I need two more weeks now. It's just nonsensical. It's really, really embarrassing. And as Jordi Farrez said, from the team that took the Museo de Sansura forward, um, he's pretty much campaigned for them. And if the Museo de Sansura had actually come to a vote, um, e.g. Bartomeu hadn't resigned before that, then it is really, really obvious that he made such a fool of himself, not just over the last four or five years, but by the way he's handled the whole situation over the last month even, then there was no way he was going to win. So with all of those elements against him, and you know, I haven't heard anyone defend Bartomeu anywhere over the last year, and certainly not over the last month, then it was obvious his only way out was resigning. I mean, why he didn't resign after the 2-8 in the summer, I don't know. Um, I can be very suspicious and think that, you know, he may have had something to do with um, organizing finances and other things behind the scenes in the last seven months or however many months it is since that happened, probably three or four now. Um, but, you know, I've got no proof of that, so I cannot really say that. But um, the way in which he's been holding on to La Poltrona, like we say in Spanish, to the to the throne it, it was quite something. So I was actually quite shocked he did resign. I thought he would be able to milk it a little bit further. But with even the Catalan government saying, no, man, just organize the, the vote and see what happens. Then people who, or the last people he thought were his allies, actually not allowing him to hold on any longer. I think that's the last, um, the last straw that made him jump. Yeah, I think that might be the interesting part here that you could kind of wonder where if he believed that he might have actually survived a vote where you did need 66.67 of those who were voted to vote him out, which was uh, a tall task, if anything. But yeah, the attempt to have just one polling location at the Camp No is uh, insanity in time of coronavirus. So that just tells you that there wasn't really a good faith effort to get people to vote for this. And then I guess, I mean, yes, he might have... Can I add something with that? Just jumping quickly. You made a very good point just there. So... The vast majority of socios are very old. They've been socios for the last 50, 60 years. These are, I don't have the exact numbers with me, but obviously I've been to the Camp Nou a trillion times. So the vast majority of socios, which are the regulars that go to the matches all the time, and obviously they are club members um, as well, that's what the word means. Um, they're all, I would say, in the 60s, 70s, even 80s, the vast majority of them. So these people, had the vote gone ahead, 
their families really wouldn't have let them out of the, of the house and risk the coronavirus, infection, pandemic, call it whatever way you want to call it, to actually go to vote. So, and these would have been the people who, you know, they've seen Barca be much, much worse than what we are right now. So they are the ones that would say, actually, you know, we could just give Bartomeu another five, six months to finish what he started, etc. In other words, the older sussies, in my experience, they are always the most conservative ones. And if these ones were affected by the pandemic or they are the most vulnerable to being infected once they're out of the house, then they, not all, all of them would have been to vote. So 66% of the people who voted, which obviously would have been the younger socios, I think it was very possible. And Bartomeu must have done his maths, which, to be honest, is one of the few things that he claims to be very, very good at. And he's seen that the only way out was to jump now. Yeah, I mean, that's the point, too, that, yeah, in the time of a pandemic, the people who are going to choose to vote and actively want to vote are most likely those who are voting to get him out in the same way that the same thing happened with those signatures where people actively wanted to make sure they put their name to paper to show that there was a referendum needed to be happened. So, yeah, that's how that all went down. I mean, I don't think we're going to harp too much about his press conference, 45 minutes where just it was a lot of blah, 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 blah. And he did mention, hey, everybody, I'm leaving. Club is in financial ruin and there's a European Super League on the horizon. So we're not going to talk about that European Super League because there's a lot of moving parts there. We don't know where that's at. And basically everyone, all the other global, after the news had come out from Liverpool, I believe it was Manchester United, but when they had come out about how much resistance they're getting in England for Barcelona, they still have to have the, the socios, the vote, the members of the club still need to vote on that for Barcelona to take place in the European Super League. So we've also heard about that for the last 10 years or so. So it was something interesting for him to try to pop in at the end, I think, just to add a little bit of chaos and make sure that, that we were talking more about the European Super League than we were about Bartomeu. That seems to be a little bit of politics there. So... What's next, though? I think that's the question. That's why we had emergency podcast here. And I will say it's a little complicated, but as I had on the YouTube video, we do know the basics per Article 35.4. I know we're already going to sleep here, but per Article 35.4 of the Statutes of the Club, a management committee a management committee now replaces the board of directors. I mean, that's the big question we keep getting. Who's in the management? Yeah. Who's on the management committee? And now there is more transparency about who that is. The Economic Commission president, Carlos Tusquets, that's not Busquets, but Tusquets, who, fun fact, was... The as what you keep seeing, he was a 27 year old when Josep Luis Nunez named him treasurer of the club. So he had a pretty big position at just the age of 27. It was a position he held when the team signed Diego Maradona for what was at the time a world record fee. And he will be leading this management committee. Now, this committee is made up of members of the Economic and Disciplinary Commissions. And I do, I understand, listeners, if you don't know a single person or even what those commissions or what those committees do at the club totally fine but it is a group that is going to be created with a minimum of seven members where there are current members of the board that could serve on that committee because they resigned and were not voted out by the vote of no confidence but i also think that that is not highly debatable that they would do that but i don't think that's going to happen anyway they then have that being the management committee has three months so basically until the end of january to call for an election. And you do say, well, I thought there was an election that was going to be in March. Why jump it ahead to January? Well, A, it's about principle. And B, it's the fact that even though the elections were going to be in March, that transition of power wouldn't have been until July. Now, because it's just a management committee, having an election in January means that that transition of power will happen much, much quicker. Not generate transfer window quick. And I also think when this management committee and when the new board does look at the finances, I think you're going to find that there is 0.0 or negative money available for the January transfer window. So I would throw that idea out. But again, the end of January is the latest an election can be called, but it could be sooner and probably should be and will be sooner. So this means that instead, again, of having the elections in March, as originally planned, there's a new transition of power. Now, who will be the next president? That obviously is the other question why we're having this emergency podcast. Now, at the moment, the five pre-candidates are Victor Font, Tony Freixa, Augusti Benedito, Jordi Ferrer, and Luis Fernandez. Now, Freixa that's a name that you might not be too familiar with. He's been associated with Bartomeu and Rizal with, and twice before has resigned from positions with the club. So <laughs> do with that information what you will. Benedito is most known for the 2017 attempt at the vote of no confidence. 
Jordi Farley, as Francesc already mentioned, got his name recognition from being the leader of this vote of no confidence, so that has helped him quite a bit. And then Luis Fernandez is a Catalan businessman who is trying to serve as a unity candidate for the different factions of supporters that may exist in the club, though I find that the socios and the supporters, due to how negative Bartomeu was, wind up being a little more unified than they would have been even under, say, Laporta. And you wonder... Dan, why didn't you say he was one of the five pre-candidates? Because he has not yet officially announced anything yet, but you get the sense that it is only a matter of time and it will eventually lead to Victor Font versus Laporta and we'll see what happens with all of that. Now, the two other names that Dermot Corrigan of The Athletic did report as potential candidates... Javier Villajuana, who just resigned as a board member. He was a director of Barca B and the Femini, which are actually two areas of the club, which I can't criticize too much in the last two or three years. But that's still going to be an uphill battle, having been a part of Bartomeu's board, as well as Jordi Roche, who we've heard about uh, a, a bit about before. His name does pop up. He is a former Girona president and the boss of the Catalan Federation or Catalan Football Federation. And he is mm-hmm. apparently being backed by Rizal. So again, I wonder how much... Uh, and this is uh, this is crazy that we're we're winding up talking about more politics, and we are actually talking about the sporting project of the club. But we know that Victor Font and Laporta, uh, Laporta and the nostalgia, and then Victor Font with a pretty comprehensive plan about what he wants to do with the club. I know I said a lot of other names in there, but I think that's what always surprised me, Frances, that we hear the names that again Twitter or YouTube or even sport and Mundo Deportivo and the names that are kind of regurgitated to us. But this is a political campaign happening in Catalonia where those of us around the world, including even yourself, are not going to actually be there to see face-to-face. So you do wonder if the name Senator Roselle does have, still have a little bit of push or a little bit of power that a candidate like a, a Russia or a, a Frasia might have some ability to get their name in there. But, I mean, I, I still feel like, and I think you get the idea, even from the Catalan media, that it will wind up being Font, who has already said that he's going to, to run. And I also have to mention, too, I'm not sure the exact number. It's uh, even having read the statutes, it's it's not completely said. It's a percentage of a percentage, so it's around two thousand plus, or even three thousand somewhere in there signatures that these pre-candidates plus they actually have to front what I believe is about one hundred and twenty million euros. They have to front to go forward with their campaign. So for any socio out there who says, "Hey, I want to run," well, you do need a little bit of pocket change, and you wind up being on the hook. For that pocket change, that's kind of what we've been talking about with Bartomeu. So you do have to be quite, quite wealthy to run for president of Barcelona. So there are very few names who can actually do that. And that's why you hear the same ones over and over again. But yes, Font winds up being the favorite early on. But this could get complicated again with politics here for a also having the name recognition now, but I still just feel like it's a little bit too late where there's now only if the election is the end of January, you're talking about less than two months for someone who doesn't have the name recognition of Laporta to put forth an entire plan and basically campaign for themselves in enough time. Well, I was going to run myself, but then we need at least three more patrons so that we can start doing that. <laughs> so, um, Sorry to disappoint you, Dan, but I'm not running. So we're going to be president and vice president. I'm sure our <laughs> listeners will be very happy about that. Um, now, about That's all good. the names you mentioned. So being the Barca chairman, being the Barca president, it's a very sweet thing to do from a social perspective. Uh, if you're a businessman, obviously, um, being a directivo, being a board member at Barca gives you a lot of prestige, uh, regardless of what business you're normally in. Um, Joan Laporta, obviously a lawyer, a successful businessman that you've mentioned already today. So working for Barca or being associated for Barca, even if it's just for two or three seasons, then gives you a lot of projection, gives you a lot of, um, gives your name a lot of weight in the Catalan Spanish uh, socialite sort of movement. And uh, as a businessman, that is something you can carry on forever. I mean, for example, you said Maria Minguella, who was associated with Barca 25, 30 years ago, is still milking it when, by going to TV and, and being a pundit and doing all his other businesses through that. So popularity, um, if you can make it to be a Barca board member for two or three years and even more if you're a chairman, then you can milk it for the next 40 so that you can make regular appearances and your opinion is always valid, etc., etc., etc. So it's like a it's like a golden ticket for Willy Wonka for the rest of your life by, you know, associating in, in Catalonia making businesses. So that's why there's so many people that want to put their name out there. Now, realistically, out of everyone that you mentioned, um, anyone who is linked to the Bartomeu not campaign, because obviously he's not even going to campaign, but to the Bartomeu years, then I think they will have no chance. I mean, 
they may be able to make it through the first cut, uh, which I think you mentioned was around 3,000 signatures. I think it's a little bit more. I think it's around five to 6,000. But regardless, I think that anyone from the Bartomeu um, years could potentially be a pre-candidate and become a candidate eventually if they get that number of signatures, which they may be able to do, I doubt they will. Now, anyone who is unknown to the public right now, uh, like Villajuana, to a degree, obviously, um, when I say the public, I mean the, the sources, the Catalan sources, the one that watch TV3, which is TV3, which is the Catalan um, national TV channel, and Channel 33, Canal 33, and all of those. So if they are relatively unknown on a Barca perspective, they're not going to make it. I mean, Villajuana and Roda, you know, they've been linked to, to Catalan football, but I don't think they've got enough pull. To, to even make the first cut. Um, I'm not even discussing the economics of it because obviously the aval, the amount they need to have beforehand is, is extraordinary, as you've already mentioned. Um, Benedito has been involved in the last three uh, Barca elections or four, to my knowledge, and uh, he's never really got very far. Uh, he's been a candidate on the last two or three, I believe, but um, he pretty much was... <laughs> Sorry to say, but a bit of a nuisance taking votes of other people. Yeah, he winds candidates. up. Yeah, he winds up getting about five percent to seven percent of the vote every year, which obviously is enough just to cause a little bit of havoc in the final numbers, but not actually be a part of it. Yeah, exactly. So it's pretty pointless. So Benedito, in my eyes, has got no chance. Freysha has been associated with Roussel and, and Bartomeu, as you said. So I would say that just because of that. He's not going to win it. Um, I think Freysha will become a candidate, though. I think he will get the first, you know, pass the first hurdle. Um, Jordi Farré has done very well by leading the campaign of the uh, Museo de Sansura. But then again, he didn't do it by himself. He started it by himself. But then the moment Victor Fon and all the others tagged along, all, all the others minus Laporta, as you've already mentioned, tagged along, then obviously he got more strength and, and that's why he has been successful. I think because he's been the one driving this forward, he will make the cut. But I don't think Farre is a serious candidate to win it all. So having said all that, there's only two candidates really. It's uh, Victor Font or Joan Laporta. Uh, Joan Laporta will throw his hat in the ring very, very soon. Um, I think it's pretty obvious by everything that he's saying and not everything that he's saying himself, but everything that Everyone who's been associated with Laporta over the last 10, 15 years is already saying, pretty much um, um, talking about it as if it was done already. So uh, basically, official announcement will come soon and then he will be a candidate. I would say that Twitter is not voting. People around the world are not voting. This is just the socios who the vast majority of are in Catalonia or in, in Spain. So I would say that because Laporta, he did well from a sporting perspective when he was in charge. But from an economic perspective, and there was some other dodgy bits and pieces that I don't want to get into too much detail, especially here. But um, no, I don't think Laporta will have enough support from from the sources, who ultimately are the ones that will be voting to to have a majority. So I think that Victor Font, for now, is the clear candidate because he is clean, basically. He's not been linked to Laporta or Roussel in the past. Um, he has been... For many years now, I want to say at least three, three or four years, he said that he will uh, push towards being a, a candidate. Uh, I think the fact that, you know, he's not really said anything out of the ordinary, really. He hasn't said anything too controversial either way. He's just pretty much pledged to the Pep Guardiola, Xavi Hernandez, Johan Cruyff philosophy of La Masia first, basically, and playing attacking football. And that's pretty much all that he said, to be honest. But I think that's the narrative that the vast majority of socios um, want to continue to hear and will definitely support. So at this moment in time, I think it's funds to lose, to be honest. Um, but, you know, it is it's going to be, I don't want to say it's going to be too long. I think that within the next month, two months tops, we should be able to have a new president. And uh, I not trust, I was going to say trust, but it's not trust. I hope that Carlos Tusquets and the people in charge of the club right now see sense and they call the election as soon as possible so that the president coming has enough time to prepare, not this season, because, you know, from a structural perspective, this season is lost. It's just preparing the next one in the best possible light. And the last point I want to mention is, regardless of who wins, when they lift that carpet, e.g. they look into the accounts in a little bit more depth and they look at the, the state of the club, do not be surprised if the Bartomeu name comes up again. And I'm not saying anything else because I've got no proof of anything. I'm just sort of reading into the future as to what could happen. Um, the moment that 
anyone coming in looks into what's going on, I'm sure that um, some questions will be asked. Leave it at that. No, I think that's right. I, I think that Bartomeu's legacy is not yet potentially written in, in a bad way, that his legacy might continue to be the the economic failings of the club. And I think what's going to happen, this is not an, this is not a defense of Bartomeu, it might come off as one, but when you look at politics around the world as well, that uh, leaders that are being, we'll say, voted out or not winning elections in this time of, the, of COVID or during the pandemic, they wind up taking the blame economically for what COVID and the pandemic was always going to be doing to not just in sports, but everywhere, that every sector of every industry is being hit by the coronavirus and by the pandemic around the world on the global market. So it's not going to be a coronavirus is not all on uh, Bartomeu, but 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 when you run a business on the slimmest of margins. Now I compare that to not to, I can't believe I'm doing this uh, on the Barcelona podcast, but uh, comparing it to the airline industry in the US that when you're really running your profit margins on the slimmest of uh, of failings or on the slimmest of resources to be able to pull from to to save your own bacon, then you're going to wind up running in trouble when a global pandemic hits. Now, should you be prepared for a global pandemic economically? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, almost wasteful to be at times, but it seems like in 2020, you should be prepared for anything. And Bartomeu clearly economically was not. And yeah, again, his legacy will continue to be written, I think, in the future. Now, moving forward, the big questions, again, are going to be when you ever have this, the politics of it and the things that will reach, as you said, Frances, not just Twitter, but the things that will reach us on a global scale outside of Catalonia are going to be the broad I keep using this word today, but these this broad stroke of promises where, you know, Laporta is going to the only campaign thing he might run on because he only has now potentially even if Tusquet says, hey, it's going to be like a, a month from now or six weeks from now, he might only have, we'll say, 20 to 30 days to really get an idea out there. He might just say, hey, I've been talking to Pep Guardiola. I'm definitely going to be bringing him back and he's going to convince Messi to stay. And that's the only promise that Laporta is going to be running on. And he'll just say, hey, that's what's going to happen. And then Font might have his idea to say, hey, I'm not going to do that. But policy wise, and here's my plans about the Espy Barca. And as far as a shabby point too, Font wants Xavi to be either the manager or a main part of it. But I will add too that Xavi has given a commitment to his Qatari employers that he would stay there mm-hmm. and continue to promote the World Cup in 2022 up until it happens, which is still more than two years away, which would still be part, let's say Font does win, that's still part of Font's first time in charge. Now, would his Qatari employers allow him to, we'll say, do some reconnaissance from Catalonia as he's the manager of Barcelona? And would Xavi being the manager of Barcelona and being in press conference asked about the Qatari World Cup, would that also just be very helpful to uh, those who are trying to make the Qatari World Cup seem like a really great activity or a really really great thing that should be seen in a positive light in in world news? Let's Again, I'm going to leave it at that. But so whether how Xavi's future does fit into all of that is one of those big questions you're going to hear over and over again. But the immediate future does not involve Xavi. It does involve Komen as manager of Barcelona for at least a year. And the whole question about Messi, it's interesting to know that because of the resignation of Bartomeu now in October of 2020, the question of will Messi remain for more than beyond this season has been completely ripped open once again. It's not saying that he's going to remain, but for me, and I think most of us, the thought was that it was 95% chance that he was going to leave. He said he wanted to leave this year. Why would he possibly change his mind? Well, if Bartomeu is out and Bartomeu was forced out, and now the club is something that he wants to be a part of moving forward, that could all change. So Honestly, I know we keep hearing Xavi and Font that could convince Messi to stay, but I think Messi is actually going to be the first domino here. So whether Font and Laporta, I think they both want to make the promise that Messi will stay, and that is going to be the first thing. Sorry, the finances is going to be the first thing, and then Messi and his future is certainly going to be second on the docket, and I think every president is going to try to promise that they can get Messi not only to stay, but they can get a happy and motivated Messi to be part of the future as he reaches the twilight of his career and kind of fades his legend down because we saw against Juventus, Messi is not done yet. <laughs> Messi is certainly not done yet. We don't know how many more years. We can't begin to, to guess that, but all we can look forward is to the 2021-2022 season that Messi certainly is going to have more than enough in a tank to be a part of if he wanted to be. And I, I think I'll let you 
end that point, Frances, because I think we've kind of run out of time otherwise. But if you just want to react to the Messi point, again, it's going to be Font Laporta. I think we hit a lot of the main ideas here. Well, Messi will do whatever he wants to do. Um, I think that he knew full well when he came out to speak um, earlier in the summer or late in the summer that his words were going to have a consequence. And the consequence, I think direct consequence, is that the Museo Sansura actually went forward and 20,000 people, 20,000 sussies, mobilized themselves to sign it. So I think that if Messi doesn't speak the way he did and doesn't threaten to go that the way that he did, then the Museo de Sansura would have had it much, much harder to get the required amount of votes. So the English media was looking at ESPN, uh, my previous employers there, and um, they were saying pretty much that Messi forced Bartomeu out, which I think is a bit of an exaggeration. But there is also, and you cannot deny that it is an element of it um, that, you know, caused it as well. So will Messi stay? Honestly, no. I think Messi goes this summer regardless. I think that he knew full well that he was either going this summer or his contract expired next year. Then obviously he would just have a way out. Or not expiring, but, you know, he's got the clothes to, to leave next year. And he's just going to exercise it, I think. Um, it's, things need to be incredibly change and incredibly positive for Messi to want to spend because you know it's his last great contract um, obviously he's not short of money himself is he but I think the challenge and he was desperate to join Manchester City uh, with Guardiola, Kun Aguero etc so I think the challenge of going I think would still be very attractive to him especially if he's got that many millions attached to it um, so something extraordinary needs to happen for Messi to want to stay if that is Victor Fon coming with Xavi as a manager then so be it. I mean, you were mentioning about the Qatari employers earlier. I mean, I live five minutes from the Al-Sad stadium. And word here is that if um, if Barca come calling for Xavi, then Xavi goes. He must have a clause in his contract or he must have spoken about it. And I think that is quite obvious. I think the key reason why he didn't leave this year is because Cazorla was signed by him. So he was just like, right, I just got Santi Cazorla to come to Doha. And then five minutes later, I'm going to Barca and then I'm leaving him here. So I think that personally... That is not something that Xavi wanted to do. Uh, but at the same time, guys, I, I'm sorry to say this. And I, I know I always say negative things at the end of the podcast. I keep doing this. But Xavi is an unproven manager. He is not leading the Qatari league at the moment. Um, he had a great win over the weekend, 7-1 against the current leaders. But he's not doing, unfortunately, sorry to say, anything extraordinary with Al-Sad. Um, I think that he's developing the players well. But other than that, he's not doing anything that makes me scream, wow, he's the best manager in the universe. There is nothing that I have seen by, you know, the the, the, the games that I've watched um, at the Al-Sad Stadium that makes you think that he would be the best manager in the history of Barca. This is not to say that he couldn't be. But obviously, I think that people are talking about Xavi coming back to Barca as he had a magic wand and was going to turn everything hunky-dory, pretty, pretty, attacking football, World Cup winners, Champions Leagues, etc., when actually there is no proof that that could potentially happen. He's an extraordinary player. He's an extraordinarily intelligent man uh, who knows the Barca stadium, the Barca entorno, the Barca um, news, the Barca operational dressing room and beyond uh, mechanisms. But there is no guarantee that that will be meaning success. So uh, would I like Xavi to go back to Barca? Yes, but I think that he needs to be ready, um, both from a mental perspective, but also from a qualifications perspective. And I don't think he's experienced enough just yet. Hopefully, I will be proven wrong if Victor Fon wins. But um, I just want to throw it out there because there is no guarantees in football. Certainly not. And not, not with Xavi, not with Iniesta, not with anybody. Well, Francis, I know you did your best to end this on a negative note. But Bartomeu, <laughs> but, well, but yes, but you say that, but Bartomeu is out and Barcelona are first in their Champions League group. And that's how we had the Subversity podcast. So no matter that's what you good. could do, I don't think you're going to damper any spirits of Kool-Aid's today. So nice try, but we'll try again to dampen your spirits next week. Barca does have Deportivo Alaves coming up on the weekend. So if they lose 8 nothing to Deportivo Alaves, well, we can be negative next week. But for now, again, I think it's positive things going on in the club in terms of the what is going to happen moving forward 
but it is going to be a long and arduous and annoying and maybe financially damaging for the club road that they are now on but we will have to see things i think are going to happen a lot quicker than we expect not in terms of the elections but just in terms of things are going to move and shake and you're going to see a lot of things in the news and we'll be sure to update you on all of that so thanks so much for listening to the podcast you can tap in your app check out the show notes to subscribe you can find us on social media on twitter at the barcelona pod or at hilton 13 for me on instagram at the barcelona pod our closed facebook group tv pod dot link backslash group and they have been pretty jubilant as well about Bartomeu leaving and you can also help us out on Patreon as Frances mentioned we do have a Patreon to help us continue to make these shows at tbpod.link backslash patron. And thankful, as I said last week, for the new patrons that we've got in the month of October. That's been cool to see. And we're on YouTube, as we all know. There are the match reviews over there where I really do break down a lot more tactics than I might even hear. That's the Barcelona Podcast as well. Check us out there and hit that subscription button. So thanks so much for listening to Barcelona Podcast. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon. And Forza Barca. Bartomeu out. Forza. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.